This podcast with Howard Brown is brought to you by Robert Franklin, the author of a new book entitled Moral Leadership, Integrity, Courage, Imagination. Please join Robert and Craig on podcast number 795, where they discuss the virtues and attributes a moral leader possesses. In this interview with Robert, they discuss the need to develop more moral leaders in our country. They also discussed some of the influences that Dr. Martin Luther King had in his life, such as Mahatma Gandhi and Paul Tillich, the author of Love, Power, and Justice. I hope you enjoy this podcast with Dr. Robert Franklin from Emory University about his perspectives on the need for more moral leaders and how this relates to our current challenges in the U.S. For more information on Dr. Robert Franklin, please visit his website at www.robertmfranklin.com That's R-O-B-E-R-T-M-F-R-A-N-K-L-I-N.com Thanks for listening and now for a featured podcast, Please enjoy Greg's interview with the great entrepreneur Howard Brown about his book, Yes is More, Tangible and Timeless Ways to Differentiate Yourself from Your Competitors. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining me from New York today is author Howard L. Brown. And Howard has a new Greenleaf book out called Yes is more and tangible and timeless ways to differentiate yourself from your competitors. Howard, good day to you and thank you for joining us even though you were in some minor surgery yesterday. Yes. Oh, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast and taking some time with my listeners to learn from a seasoned business veteran. We always love that. Somebody who's actually been tremendously successful at what they've done. And what I like to do, Howard, all the time is let my listeners know just a little bit about you. We'll get into a little bit more of it through the questions themselves. But Howard uh, is graduated from Syracuse University in 1967, got married to Nancy Goldis, and joined one of the family's plastic companies, Uh, And in 1972, he purchased Summis Office Supplies, a $300,000 office product company, which he expanded both through internal growth and acquisitions in the New York, New Jersey, Long Island, Westchester metropolitan area. And in 1987, he sold Summit to Dutch Company, uh, and it had sales at the time of $55 million. He remained with the company until 96 increasing their footprint in the Northeast to more than $500 million. so quite a salesperson. So in September of 98, uh, Howard and investors purchased 10 office product companies in one day, including the main spoke allied office products uh, in Hasbrook uh, Heights, New Jersey. Combined total sales of those companies were $110 million. And in 2016, the group of companies known as Allied Office Products was doing sales of $375 million. Again, Howard once again made an impressive sale, this time to Office Depot. 
And in 2007 and 2008, uh, Howard and his son employees, most of the same investors, purchased uh, Rent-A-Crate, followed by ShredX, which many people already know, uh, and had a covenant office products then. 2010, acquired high-touch business services, became the parent company of Rent-A-Crate and ShedX. And in October of 2010, High-Touch Business Services, Inc. purchased my office products doing $120 million in sales. The point is, Howard is somebody who knows business, knows acquisitions, knows what he's doing. Um, he now is semi-retired, but giving back to the community. And one of the ways he's giving back is through this book that he's written, Yes is More. I'm going to encourage all my listeners to go get that. He sits on the boards of several company, of several nonprofits, and he takes active roles in fundraising and leadership. And boy, do we need more moral leaders in this country, Howard. And I would say you're probably one of those people because of the loyalty uh, that you talk about in the book. Now, you start the introduction off by informing the reader about the sales of these companies, which I just talked about. Um, then you go in to say that you believe that your success was due to two values, loyalty and reputation. Um, and again, boy, that's something that today we need more than ever. And even I look at it, even in our government. Why is the business world that we live in today are those two things so important in your estimation? You know, it's not a single focus, one person business. It's a team effort. And you've got to create the culture with your employees. Uh, and as I went in the book about suppliers and with everybody, because you can't do it by yourself. You can't run a three, $400 million company on a nationwide basis by yourself. Your front line are your drivers, your customer service people, and your salespeople that are touching the customer every day. And it is critical in a commodities business that you have to differentiate yourself, one, with more services, and two, with quality people, or more importantly, first, the quality people that are going to make sure that they take care of the customer and they take care of the customer. <clears throat> a lot of diffusing of day-to-day -day problems is handled by the drivers and the customer service people. And if you give them the authority to give the answers at the time, they can solve a lot of problems. And in doing that, you're creating a feeling for them that they're part of, the, of a bigger picture and how important they are and how your loyalty to them is just as important as their loyalty is to the company. So you're trying to create a groundswell from the bottom and if you allow these people as they're with you to get promoted and to raise to, to rise to different uh, places in the company, they're protecting their family business in their own head. So that was the idea. And that's why every time after we sold, the same people always came back. They left their companies and came back and joined us. They felt they were joining the company. Well, and, they, and, and you write about your loyalty. And I, and I want to bring, when you give people autonomy like that, um, the autonomy to make decisions. And most big companies today really try very hard to do that. Um, uh, what is it with the trust element that has to happen, Howard, to really be able to have the autonomy? One is, you know, they have to have the skill sets. So somebody like yourself has to help them garner those skill sets. And two, then you have to let them uh, kind of fly with their own wings, right? 
Absolutely. You know, we're explaining to them that we're not in the blood business and we're not saving lives. We're in the pens, pencils, and paperclip business. And it, 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 there's very, very few decisions that they're going to make to that are ever going to hurt the parent company. And they, we want them to act quickly and use common sense to hold on to the customers and to do what is necessary uh, on a day-to-day basis. And there's no problem making a mistake. Make it, admit it, and fix it. It's the fixing part that was more critical than anything else. So we, we, we acted pretty quickly on the seat of our pants. But when we knew we made a mistake or went in the wrong field or did something, we jumped on it and corrected it right away. Well, as in any good business person like yourself, there's always someone behind them, right? I've been a successful entrepreneur myself. I've started different businesses, including this podcast 14 years ago, which I do for the love of it. You know, this is not a moneymaker, but it's to help give people like you a platform. But behind you was a father, a very well-educated father. Um, I think in the book, you said he had three degrees, Um, but he really loved sales, um, you know, which was really kind of unique. And he went on to start several plastic companies with a couple of partners and then sold them off at a very young age, and then he retired. I say young age because in the book, you wrote how young he was uh, to do that. What it, was it about your father's business acumen and personality that you admired so much that you kind of followed in his footsteps? I mean, you, to me, from what I gleaned from your book about your father, you seem like a spitting image to a large degree. You know, he... he told me two, two important things. Um, first of all, you have to understand, I never saw him that much. Uh, I, I try to have dinner with him every night because he put in 14-hour days. Um, and during dinner, I would listen. And he said to me that when you, if you want to be in business and you want to be successful, you have to take a step back and listen to your people and then hear them and try to understand where they're coming from. And the same thing when you're buying a company or selling a customer, you've got to be able to listen to what their needs are. And then if you address their needs, you're showing the kind of interest in them that they would appreciate. You're not just a salesman. You're now getting part of their situation. So that's I learned that lesson, and I applied that lesson. And even when I went to buy a guy's company, I wanted to find out what were the most important things for him, not for me. I wouldn't be interested in sitting down talking to him if I didn't see the synergy and it was worthwhile in buying. But I understood. But if I understood his key points, then I could address it and then possibly make a better deal for myself. Well, Howard, you know, I think that was awesome advice that he gave you. You know, here you are sitting at the dinner table. I think the fact that 14-hour days or so many days that he put in might have been the reason why he retired young and sold it off. Um, he might have just been tired, right? He didn't uh, like it at the end. There were too many meetings and too much red tape, and he didn't have the feely touchy with the employees and the customers, and he decided that he had enough and he'd call quits. Yeah. Well, he had a good, I'd say, fairly long retirement before he died. What was his age when he passed away? 80-something? and he 80. retired at the age of 54. Yeah, so he had 33 years of good time. He and you mentioned at- that loyalty to customers is especially critical in the commodities business like what you were in. 
paper, pens, pencils, whatever, and like office supply business. Um, how do you create reciprocating loyalty from the customer to you? I think, you know, it, it's one thing to say, hey, I'm loyal to you. The question is, is how did your smaller company create reciprocation in that effect? I mean, I look at some of the staples today, even around me here in North San Diego County. We've actually had two of the staples close, okay? And one, I'm going to use this as an example. I went to the door one day and it said, we're closed. And I was, there was like no notice, no nothing. And I was like, wow, this is where I was going to get my stuff. That's not very loyal. Um, you know, it just didn't seem right. Uh, explain to me how you cr- created in this commodities business, this reciprocating loyalty. You know, we as we created personal relationships with our employees, we tried to create personal relationships with our customer because obviously I can't tell anybody my big pen was better than theirs or my filing cabinet was better than somebody else's. Everything we bought and then resold it. Um, so if you develop those relationships with the customer and you're there for them when they need you, perfect example, I think we at one point, under the Allied banner, stole more law firms in Staples and Depot and Office Max put together in the city and around the country. And when they would run a closing, sometimes you'd get a call in the middle of the night, they ran out of Xerox paper. They had a number to call 24-7, seven days a week, that if they needed something, as long as it took us to go to the warehouse and get it and drive it into New York, no question about who was paying for it. No question about the extra service. They got what they wanted. And as long as they knew we were there for them, and it wasn't something that was a life-threatening operation that was needed, so they needed a qualified somebody on a commodity business, we created that feeling with our customers. I.e., the first time I sold, I had a two-year restricted covenant. The second time, I had a four-year restricted covenant. And the last time I sold to Staples in eighteen. At the age of 73, they gave me a seven-year restricted covenant because not only did my employees come back and my salesmen come back, my customers always came back because nobody gave them that service. And that's why the book is called Yes is More. We always said yes to the customer and the big boxes know how to say, this is what we do. We don't do that. We can't do it. We have to get it elsewhere. That was our creed and how we did business. Now, the, to to your benefit, you are a lot more nimble uh, as a company. Oh, absolutely. And so because of being that nimble, you're able to provide that kind of service. Not that Staples couldn't have tried that. They could have. But doesn't being nimble uh, an important element? A- absolutely. But even the big customers, until they can make a decision. You know, I, I'll give you an example. You have a customer that you pick up. And, and you say during the meeting, is there anything that we have to service you that is that important? And the guy says to you, I have to have for my employees breakfast every day. I have to have cereal and I have to have uh, fresh fruit. Well, who carries that? You, yeah, we're, we're not in that business. We made arrangements for them to have that at 7 o'clock every morning when they wanted it. That was the most important thing to them. Not on the $400,000 a year of product that they bought. That was it, that they were taking care of their employees because they expected their employees to be in at a certain time and they were holding meetings and they wanted them to be fed if they wanted to be fed, not worried about services coming in during meetings. So if you find out, as I said, what the customer is looking for, we were able, yes, because we were nimble, 
to react to their needs when they wanted it, how they wanted it, so forth and so on. So that was the difference. So would another, would another, pardon me for interrupting, but would another success story, and again, I can't remember this young man's name, but it started up in Santa Barbara, if I remember correct, and FedEx finally bought them. And it was the guy that was the in the copy business that literally people could come in 24 hours a day, seven days, and his his unique differentiator was the fact that, hey, if I wanted to make copies at two o'clock in the morning, I could go in and make copies at two o'clock in the morning. Now that FedEx owns them, it's not that way anymore. Um, well, give Staples credit, learning from past experience. They, for the first time, kept our name and our customer service people because they liked the way we handled mid-market right. better than they did. Now, if you remember, I don't know if you remember, but do you, do you remember the name of that company? I'm blanking on it right now. Um, but it, it became huge, and it was this, you know, all-night copy place, right? Um, and again, I'm blanking on it, but he sold off to FedEx, and now when you see it, you'll see the FedEx sign out front. Now, Howard, you articulated five ways to build relationships with your customer. Um, and it's very apparent, right, kind of in the center of the book. That's This is a really important element for you. What are those values that you hold steadfast within your organization or that you held within your organization that you think my listeners can learn from to say, hey, you're building a business. These are some of the values that you may want to consider adopting. I think that you can't be transparent to your customers and your employees. I think it's critical that they see you in the place of business. You're walking the floor, you're meeting with them, and they know that you know what they're doing. I think it's critical when a salesman wants to close an account that they bring the CEO or the chairman to the meeting. When Staples or Depot or, or Office Max is going to close on an account, they're bringing another salesman in. Nobody talks about their business or their children better than the owner of the company. He created it. It's his feeling. And I wanted to be there. And I wanted my key people to be there at any major closing or chance to close on a major piece of business. I think it's critical that the people understand what the empowerment they have and how we want them to make quick decisions so the customer is not having to be held on the phone for 20 minutes and being bounced around to this department, that department. Every department was prepared to answer the question, not spin off the call and get them an answer. If they couldn't get it, they told the person they would do all the research for them and get back to them on a timely basis. There is no email even now in my retirement that I don't answer immediately and there's no phone call I don't return immediately. I think it's critical. And I've never, it's a big word, never been late for an appointment. I'd rather be 15, 20 minutes early, and I want my people to be the same. I want my people to dress the same. I want them to look proper when they're going into an account. And I want to be able to create an image that they're dealing with a very important customer, meaning us, who's trying to sell them. We're not, even though we're much smaller than the big guys, we're just, you're just as important to us or even more important. And all my big customers had the cell phone numbers of their salespeople. And in most cases, my number, if they needed something, my son's number, my president's number, they knew they could get somebody to solve a problem for them. I like what you said, because, you know, there isn't anything, I think, more aggravating than telecommunications companies when you're trying to 
fix something with one of your cell phones. I don't care if it's Sprint or Verizon or whoever it is. And you get passed around from one place to another place, another place. And a lot of places don't have customer service. And I don't believe that's just our age. I believe even millennial and all these kids would like to be treated the same way, even though they'll sit and text or they'll do something. The reality is I like the fact that your people uh, were dressed properly. They were prompt. They were either early or on time. You know, uh, they literally were paying attention. If they couldn't solve the problem, they would find somebody who could solve the problem and get back in a timely manner. To me, that's what grows value in a company. And that's how you grew value. Now, you tell a great story when you worked for your father. And he had an employee by the name of Martin. And yeah, and you and Martin worked together one day, and Martin came up to you and said, uh, "You, why are you working here? And you obviously were confused, and it went to your father so that he could have a talk with Martin. You use this story to accentuate how employees, so that they become so loyal to you in the organization. Can you explain to our listeners a little bit about that story? Because I thought that was really something. It was a guy that had worked for your father, was very loyal to your father. But then you came in and he's like, well, what what the heck is are you doing here? I'm going to lose my it's job. Even, it's <laughs> even deeper than that. In 1960, my father sold his first plastic company. In 65, he bought it back. Marvin was working for him at that time. Right. And when he bought the company, he put Marvin in charge, not where my father worked, at, another, at a smaller company he just bought back, put him in charge and told Marvin that when I graduated college, I was going to be his partner, junior partner. I worked there the summers of 65, 66. I graduated in 67 in June. We got married and came back from our honeymoon, came to work the first day. And Marvin said, what are you doing here? I said, Marvin, we just spent two years together. <laughs> I believe... I believe his wife tried to convince him that after I learned the business more than I already knew it, and I got my feet wet, that my father was going to replace him. And he didn't know who my father was to even think about that. So when my father reassured him and explained to him the facts of life, we then got along. Um, didn't give me the best of jobs to do, worked it out. But for Marvin, scared, being scared that I was going to take over his job, I learned that I better make sure people who were going to work for me understood how I felt about them, how I was going to work with them, and, and, and what I was going to do with them. And I tried to convince Marvin through the years. He sold that company in 70. It was another company he sold. Uh, and they got rid of him right away, and I stayed on for two years. He was just, he was just uh, afraid that someday someone who gave him a break was going to take advantage of him and get rid of him. So uh, well, but I learned it's- what not to do from him. The lesson that you learned that Mar that you learned from this was uh, get, letting people know where they stand. Okay, just period. Where do you stand within the company? And I think it's important to communicate that. What are the opportunities for advancement? How can you grow with this company? Um, and I think so little of that goes on. I think most employers kind of just expect it. There's an expectation, right? And I think. If you spend the time to communicate, uh, however you do your employee reviews, it doesn't really matter how what your process is. What's important is that they need to know where they stand. And you mentioned that loyalty is a balancing act in this, that it's ever-changing, always evolving business environment, uh, 
with recommendations about staying loyal uh, to your vendors. So let's talk about vendors because, hey, in today's business environment, Amazon, all these people that are out there, there's so many places you can go to buy whatever it is you need. Uh, but the behemoth probably is Amazon, right? Now you got Wayfair and you can get furniture online. And you can do all this kind of stuff. How did you keep this loyalty? And in today's environment, what recommendation would you give? I mean, look, we're looking at Main Street is probably shrinking, right, Howard? Uh, we see a lot of retail going by the wayside. We see a lot of restaurants closing. Uh, and COVID was kind of the impetus, yes. But at the same time, you got to look at it. Maybe economically, it, it isn't. I'd love to get your viewpoint on loyalty as it relates to everybody going back to these small retailers that are struggling to make it. Well, in order, you're, you're, there's a difference. If you talk about the suppliers, when we were very small in 1972 doing $300,000 a year, Mm-hmm. And we started getting larger. That year, I added a million dollars worth of business. And I can use the word I because I brought it in from my local country club. Everybody I met, what do you do? I sell office supplies and I ended up getting their account. So when we brought in the business, I met with the manufacturers and I tried to meet with the presidents, even though they didn't want to meet with me because we were so small. But I used the trade shows to meet with them and have lunch with them and find a way to to get to know them and for them to get to know me. And I said to them, at the time I'm 25, 26, 27, we're going to grow this business. And these are our principles and this is where we're going. And if needed, I have a little family money behind me after all my father retired and and I'm going to expand this business. I'm going to buy other companies. So it's like taking a ride on the Reading, I used to explain to them. If you jump on board and you sell me product and you sell me at better than I deserve, I understand you can't give it to me what what you're giving the big boys, but there's got to be a big gap between the biggest and the littlest. So if you work with me, as I grow, I will stay loyal to you. And through the three companies I built up, my main suppliers, people I bought paper from, which was the number one SKU, the salesman that was on the account always knew when I came back that they had first crack at the business. And if they were going to treat me properly, I would treat them properly. That's um, great. That's great advice for anybody. And my biggest anybody. supplier that I bought from was a company called SP Richards, which was owned by Genuine Auto Parts, the Napa people. If you're familiar with Napa Auto Parts, the, chair, the CEO of the company became very uh, good to me. And when I came back, I told him I needed help. He provided the money. I provided a 10-year contract that he would get first call of the business. And we grew that business uh, for him. Um, even at the last company, he was doing $60 million with Myop when I bought it. When I left, I was doing over $800 million a year with it. So, um, it well, was- these, are great, these are great lessons, Howard, for our listeners. And, and one of the things you talk about right on the cover of the book is differentiate yourself. And you're a big believer in that, you know, $300,000 company, moving it to multi-million. How did your commitment to differentiation contribute to your company's success? And most importantly, how did you differentiate yourself in the office supply business? Now, you've told us some of the things. People showed up on time. They listened. They they talked. 
Was there any other differentiators that you created in the market that made you uh, who you are today? I believe we were the first company to offer what we called the one solution sell. Um, we had we knew companies in Jersey didn't sell printing, so we were competing against anybody in New Jersey. We led that we could do their business cards, letterheads, their forms, warehouses for them. Nobody in the industry wanted to warehouse customer inventory. We then got from printing into promotional products, anything with a corporate logo. Again, we'd go into a bank that had 20, 30 branches and ask them where they stored their stuff. They showed you it was in a closet. Branches ran out. They had to get messengers to take it there. We offered them to put their merchandise in our warehouse at no charge to them as long as we got all of their promotional products business. And we delivered everything to them the next day along in the same box with the pens, pencils, paper clips, and the printed forms. So then we added the promotional products. We then got into the furniture business and said we wanted to sell in the simplest form, the filing cabinets, the chairs, and the desks. It then became into getting involved with workstations. And we had, uh, after we bought Myop, we inherited nine designers. Uh, and they did a big job uh, with selling half a million and million dollar installations. So we expanded that. Uh, we hired what we called specialists. So a salesman who couldn't sell printing and couldn't sell promotional products and was afraid to sell furniture, he brought in the specialist who, who didn't make any money on the account. But it got he got something in his bonus, but he sold the merchandise for the salesman, and the salesman got a full commission on it. So it encouraged the salesman to ask, what more can I sell you? And then my son went in the coffee business, and we bought a business for him uh, where he was the 50% voting shareholder, even though he wasn't a 50% owner, owner, and we found fraud, but he brought back some of the ideas, and Michael was the first first to introduce uh, the K-Cup into the office industry, office supply industry. And that year we had a trade show at the Hilton Hotel in New York where we used to get two, 3,000 customers come in a eight-hour day. And we gave away these machines based on raffle numbers. We made sure every law firm in New York City of any size won a coffee machine. Now, was and that Keurig at the time? Because you Keurig. turned this into a $50 million division for your company. Um, yeah. and, and that's why that's why Depot was one of the reasons they wanted us. At that time, Depot was selling. Office Depot was not selling any coffee at all. And it was a 50% gross profit business. Today, you're lucky if it's a 10% gross profit business. But then it was new. And every law firm, you know, was holding meetings, was making pots of coffee and throwing away three quarters of it. And if somebody wanted decaf and somebody wanted regular, this, they, this way they could get flavors and get whatever they want with a little, with a little pot. It was interesting to me how long it took, because I'm not a coffee drinker, how long it took them to find tea that they could brew in those machines. And I literally worked with a company here in San Diego where the guy came up with, uh, the brewer came up with the formula for the K-Cup for tea. Um, But I will tell you that that, to me, the differentiator, Howard, was the fact that you and your management team, um, there's a gal at uh, NYU, I think I interviewed her not that long ago, Seeing around corners, she used to say. You differentiated yourself by being able to see around corners, by being able to predict some of the things by looking at the trends of where things were going and what needed to happen and where there were 
uh, challenges for these businesses, whether it was storing their stuff at no cost for the loyalty or as finding office furniture or the K-cup for the coffee. You literally were a visionary in that respect. And the key is you've got to be a visionary in today's world to make it. You've got to be somebody who can look for and differentiate yourself. And you tell a great story also, and this is another element of your book. It's about finding the right financial people. Uh, As I'm speaking to you, last night I get an email from a young man that I brought into a company as a CFO. He says, Greg, I want to meet. I want to pay you. I think I want to get out of being a CFO and and do more consulting like you do or whatever, and I'll pay you. And it was interesting because he's a very good CFO. He's an excellent, he's, he's stellar CFO. Talk to us, if you would, about the lessons that you learned kind of the hard way. Uh, because when you first started, it wasn't always good with the financial side. I remember no, reading it in the book. And you weren't always the, what? You can't skimp on buying quality yeah. to give you information and not always to agree with you. They've right. got to be able to give you timely information. Getting your financials three, four months late, is, is, is you can't operate a business. Correct. So you better put together a good staff and give them the ability to hire the people needed to get it done. Now, at the same time, if you're a young and, 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 and a new business, there's just so much you can afford. But that's not a place to skimp in your business. Numbers are critical because they also will help you keep the relationship with your bank. Banks want information on a timely basis. We were always highly leveraged, and it was critical that when banks wanted to see things, they got it on a timely basis. Uh, The one biggest mistake I made with the CFO in in Nashville, every time the banks wanted something, he, he, he couldn't deliver it. He couldn't deliver it after he asks for more time and more time and more time. So all you're doing is alienating the bank that's lending you money and keeping you alive. Right. Uh, so it, it's critical uh, to, to have good, strong financial people with you. And that, and that even your management team, your, your top management people should be sitting down with you and your financial people as a team going over the numbers so they understand where you're making money, where you're not making money, especially if it's a team effort. Because if you're trying to hide your success or your failures from your people, they have no idea how they can help. And if you want to talk about being innovative, you've got to give them a chance to be innovative. I mean, you talk about tea, just to digress for a second. As soon as it came out in the industry, my son came in and said, I want to give away 5,000 boxes of tea to all of our customers. We never sold two, we sold $2 million worth of tea the first year because he gave it away because they wouldn't have tasted it. They got right. it, they tasted it. So that was an innovation that right. he wanted to do. That's critical. The same with people in the room sitting there saying, we're not making as much money as we should. And, and you read the book, when 9-11 came, we lost, we lost $11 million in receivables and $25 million a year in customers. Mm-hmm. And we had just moved into 275,000 square feet of space in a warehouse with all the bells and whistles, and we moved into 60,000 square feet of offices. So we needed help from the employees and their loyalty and for them to be ways to figure out how to cut costs and everything else. So it wasn't an easy time and hold on to customers. So that's been critical. And that's what we, we you know, I, I try to get across in the book. I mean, even today, I mean, you know, I had surgery yesterday. 
I don't know how one of my salesmen found that. I had six salesmen that worked for me. I haven't seen them in two years. Pick up the phone. How are you feeling? How are you doing this? And that. That's the relationship that we created with these people. They cared about the business. Um, well, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's an acumen to your, you know, look, it's a compliment, I should say, to the way you build relationships personally. You know, look, I, I would assume based on kind of what I read about your father, the snippet you told in the book, it was probably pretty similar. He put in those 14-hour days because he was a great salesperson. He was building relationships. And, and you know, many of our listeners are going to wonder, you know, if you looked at the bio that I read in the beginning, I bought this company, I sold this company, I bought this company, I sold this company, I bought this company, I sold this company. They're going to say, how did this guy do all this? Mergers and acquisitions are not the easiest things. And I think if you could give our listeners a little bit of advice about what to look for, what to avoid, okay, and how to put a deal together in your estimation, I think that would be great advice. So what, I'll give you the back you end first. Okay. In order not to lose a deal, the law firms, in my opinion, and I've had very loyal law firms that have worked for me and I've paid them millions upon millions of dollars, is that when you let the lawyers handle all the conversations, you got a slim chance of making the deal and running your bills up. You're going to get to a point at the end when you're going to bring all the lawyers in a room from both sides and, and you're going to take charge and say, now, what are your business issues that we have to resolve? Because if not, these acquisitions go on forever. Three mm-hmm. months become six months and six months become nine months and your bills get racked up and, and the lawyers are always trying to prove that they're better than the other lawyer. So my best advice I can give somebody is <laughs> if you're going to sell your business or you're going to buy a business, you get all the parties in the room after a period of time and you make sure you make the deal. They're there to protect you, not to make your deal. So, so that's that, the best advice I is, can give somebody. Look at if in all these years I've done podcasts, if people would just listen to that snippet, you know, and it's not a, it's not a, a arrow throwing at the lawyers. It's basically, look, in the end, it's your deal. You, even though you've hired attorneys to draft documents, that's really what you've done. The deal itself and the structure of the deal is up to you. And that was great advice. Absolutely. Uh, and any other piece of crazy. advice? Yeah, you just can't get crazy with the language. You've got to be careful. You know, you're making a deal with, with, with people that are like yourself. You're not lawyers, and the lawyers want to put language in there where they can catch everybody. So that, right. going, I don't want to repeat. That's, that's my best advice. Okay. Also, if you're going to buy a company, you better sit down with your staff because to me, and we bought a lot of companies. I'd say we bought close to 40 to 50 companies. When we bought them, we closed on a Friday. My whole team, I had a special team that flew to the location that they were buying, and they worked the entire weekend. They were on our system by Sunday night. The people were trained over the weekend. The people that were going to go were gone. The company name was changed. The announcements went out. The business cards for the new people were gotten. The truck drivers understood what was going on. I flew in Sunday night to have dinner with all the key people we bought. 
and some of the key truck drivers. I was at breakfast Monday morning to meet with the people and explain to them that this was an opportunity that they could sell much more than they ever sold before. Some of them never sold printing. Some of them never sold promotional products. Some of them were, were not even in the coffee business. We explained to them that this was a growth-oriented company and that the people there were all that were staying were all going to have jobs and they all could have growth. You can't buy a company and unpack the luggage six months, eight months later because you can't get your synergy. The only way you can buy companies, unless it's strategic, is to get the synergy up front. It's when you're much bigger than somebody, you've got better purchasing power, but you better get the synergies up front. So we always did that right away. Now, when I bought Myop, which was a $110 million company, it was hard to convince them when we bought somebody because it was, a, it was a, like you said, we weren't as nimble. And not being as nimble, uh, the, the, 30, the weekend became 30 to 45 days. But, but I fought like a tiger because they started off and they needed 90 days. They needed 60 days. I gave them 30 days. And if they'd slipped to 45, it was done within 45 days. But we were buying at that time 50, 60 million dollar companies, not five, six, seven, eight million dollar companies. Right. So it was a little harder. But again, it was the pressure that everybody understood. We had a book that was printed of what procedures had to be followed by everybody to get this company converted. Staples bought us in, 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 in June of 18. Now they're a $26 billion company. It took them a year and a half to integrate the company, a year and four, four months to integrate the company. Now, and, and they bought you in 2018? In June. Wow. And it took them that long to do that. And it's still not completely done with the biggest customers, but they're all moving over now. They did it smartly. They didn't want to lose any companies. Listen, we had, we had 14,000 accounts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And major hospitals. And what was tricky for them is they didn't do what we did for customers. So if somebody had to have fruit, that they didn't have to program that in there. Well, again, it's systems, it's procedures, it's operations. Operations are a big part of any of this. And, you know, you're a master at this because you've been able to integrate businesses into making a bigger business. And not everybody is as good as you are, Howard. And it's, it's really well explained. And again, I'm going to hold up the book for my listeners. Uh, yes is more really is about what more can you do for the customer to keep the customer's loyalty and differentiate yourself. And that's what Howard's been talking about. And in the wrapped up to our interview here, Howard, what I'd like to do is um, as you, we go into this, what advice would you like to leave the listeners as it relates to how they can create, meaning they, not you, but if you were giving sound advice, yes is more in whatever business it's in. How can they look for those opportunities? Because really what I see you as, and this is a compliment, you are a great opportunist. You had good timing most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time. And it's almost like the guys in the stock market. If you don't like it, sell right? Get out, uh, move on and do something. But it's all about understanding where you see it going. And I don't think everybody has that same vision, Howard. Um, what would you tell or advise people about trying to develop that particular foresight or that ability? You got to listen to the market conditions. You've got to make yourself available 
to phone calls that say, you know, we'd like to talk to you about buying your business. Uh, we'd like to talk to you about a merger. I, I attended all those meetings. If I had, if I had no intention, I learned something from the meetings. I learned if a guy was going to buy, wanted to buy me, that he was buying this product better than me, it, or he was doing something better than we were doing. I think the key is listening, listening to what's going on in the world, listen to what's going on in, 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 with your competitors, understand your competitors, understand your market, and constantly c- encourage your people to think out of the box, especially when you're in a commodity business. You know, if I may digress just for a second, you mentioned the, the, the big box today, the Amazon of the world. At the end, Amazon saved my company. I was doing $250,000 a night with Amazon as a third-party provider, and we convinced them our service was so good that when they went in to sell John Hopkins, just to give you an example, Mm -hmm. their one solution, which was lab equipment and other equipment, they brought us in as their partner and handed over a $10 million piece of business to us. Today, I'll bet you Staples, through that relationship, is doing over $100 million with Amazon over and above our daily business Mm -hmm. because we convinced them our customer service was better than Depot's and we were more flexible than Depot and we could do things for that customer. And Amazon sent in crews, kids in their young 20s, that, that made us their preferred vendor over anybody else. They even set us up in Nashville, Tennessee with their prime to-do business because we didn't want to be in the prime business. They put it in at their expense, moved into my warehouse, and showed us how to do it. Right. It just became too unprofitable. And, and they were able to make the margins because they knew how to work with Amazon. So you teamed up with them. So Unbelievable. And it, you know what? It is unbelievable. Same loyalty. that they, We were worried that they were, they were our competitor. They we convinced them, and I didn't have it throughout my company. My president, who I loved and adored, <laughs> fought it every day. He didn't want to be in bed with Amazon. But Amazon, if you're a supplier at Amazon, they paid us in seven days. They never skipped an invoice. Right. And they're even a bank if you need it. Right. They're prepared to lend you money overnight. Oh, I, so I, I had a great relationship with Amazon. I have no qualms with Amazon whatsoever. I bought stock in their company early. So, but here's, here's my question. Now here's a person who's gone all through their life like you, and this is, I'll wrap the interview. Now you've, you've constantly reinvested in businesses. Okay. And I think for some of our listeners they are going to say, well, now Howard's out of the business and he had a big payday somewhere along the line. What do you do with your money now to help people, one, or two, you put it to work for you because it's not working in high touch and it's not in any of these other places. Now, you may have stock in Staples. That's fine. Uh, that's your personal I know, choice. As it, as it turns out. Or, I, I, what I do is uh, people come to me yep. I have, and, and make investments. First of all, I won't invest with anybody who doesn't put their own money in the deal. Right. They better have a sizable amount of skin in the game. Okay. Then I'm prepared to put money into the So you're industry. investing now, you're investing in smaller businesses yourself. Mostly, you- mostly real estate, uh, garden apartments where I trust the guy, he has a track record. I'm getting quarterly returns. I'm looking for income. Okay. Uh, 
So that's where, where I go. I'm Got involved it. in a couple small businesses that uh, one guy bought a business doing uh, $2 million uh, in the building supply business. Today, we're going to do close to $40 million. Uh, his parents were both killed in a plane crash uh, many, many years ago. And um, I, I don't physically go there, but I'm like his father. So I, you know, I, I, we have conversation. But, uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm trying to help people where I can. Yeah. Uh, my goal would be to be invited to sit on some boards. Okay. Well, we here's the at Syracuse that we give money to for them to go. Well, we're involved locally in, 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 in the local hospital. We're involved in uh, Crohn's and colitis. Unfortunately, my daughter's had the disease for 30 some odd years. Uh, my wife's on, on more boards than I am, but, but she's very active in giving back. So we uh, believe in that. Well, but you're I've, a philanthropist and, and, and I appreciate your perspective. You know, there, there needs to be more people like you on boards who can help companies. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being on Inside Personal Growth, sharing your story. And again, for my listeners, you can find the book at yesismorebook.com. Yes there you can download the book, part of it. Uh, you also can go, we were just talking about Amazon. Go to Amazon. There'll be a link to Amazon as well. There also will be a link to our YouTube channel in this interview uh, as well with Howard, plus our animated uh, video as well. And you can catch us on all the channels. We're on iTunes. We're on Spotify. Uh, we're everywhere where you could listen to a podcast. So, Howard, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth, sharing your insights about your personal journey uh, your business journey, and some of the lessons you've learned along the way. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much, Greg. It was a pleasure also.